chapter 7. Daniel 7, this is also the text to which we'll give the bulk of our attention. Daniel 7, then beginning in verse 1. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, four winds, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. And then as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, and the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. And after this I looked and behold another, like a leopard, with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the, beast, all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up from among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened." I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking, and as I looked, the beast was killed, and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed." As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever and ever." Then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying, with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze, and which devoured and broke in pieces, and stamped what was left with its feet. 
and about the ten horns that were on its head, and the other horn that came up, and before which three of them fell, the horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things, and that seemed greater than its companions. As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them, until the Ancient of Days came, and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High, and the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom." Then he said, as for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on the earth, which shall be different from all the kingdoms, and it shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it to pieces. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings shall arise, and another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the former ones and shall put down three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High, and, and shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and shall think to change the times and the law, and they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. But the court shall sit in judgment, and his dominion shall be taken away, to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. Here is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me, and my color changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. So far from the book of Daniel, let's also turn briefly to the New Testament to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 1. Beginning in verse 1, and we'll read through verse 11. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom, of Is- this, the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So far from the word of God. As we reflect on these things, let's sing together from Psalm 7. Give special attention this evening are the verses 13 and 14 of Daniel chapter 7. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, Ascension Day is one of those points on the liturgical calendar that, that doesn't get a whole lot of attention from Christians. In fact, many Christians, perhaps even some of you, 
might wonder why we even have an Ascension Day service. We understand the huge implications, for example, of Christmas. We, we also understand the, the massive importance of, of Good Friday and, and of Easter. And we can appreciate the, the importance of Pentecost. But with Ascension Day, most Christians don't really understand why we celebrate that day. Obviously, it was a memorable day for Christ's disciples because they, they watched him go up into, the, into heaven. It was their last time seeing him on earth. But many Christians are not sure why it's still such a day, an important day for us and why we even have a special service dedicated to that day. This evening, I hope that as we reflect on Daniel chapter 7, that we can gain a a greater appreciation for the significance of Ascension Day, especially in human history. To do that, we'll be giving our attention to Daniel 7, especially verses 13 and 14. The whole chapter is a bit of a mysterious chapter. I understand, I believe some of the ladies did a Bible study on on Daniel 7, and, and they would also attest that it is a mysterious book and especially the latter half, filled with mysterious chapters because of all the talks of of beasts and and horns and things like that. But it actually would not have been as mysterious to the people of Daniel's day or to the people of uh, of the disciples of Christ to their day. The the reality is we don't understand the symbols and the history as 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 well as they did. Now, we don't need to get into too much detail as far as the meaning of the beasts and the horns. Maybe in a year or so, I thought about doing a a series on Daniel, and then we can dig in. But I wanted to focus especially on verses 13 and 14. And to do that, we we need to understand at least that these beasts are earthly kingdoms. There's the kingdom of of Persia, and then there's the kingdom of Greece, and then the, the fourth beast... I would argue, is the Seleucid kingdom, not one we're very familiar with, but one that dominated over Israel after the Greek empire was was split apart. And there's good reasons for taking those positions, and other people take different ones. But we don't need to get into which kingdoms they are so much as understanding these are powerful world kingdoms and kingdoms that especially ruled over God's people. From the perspective of Israel, these are the great kingdoms of the world. And what we need to understand, you can see this so clearly in the chapter, those beasts that are earthly empires and earthly kings are broken down. They existed for a time, and it says their dominion was taken away and given to the one like the Son of Man. And those are the key, that's the key concept in Daniel 7. And then verse 13 and 14 then become the key verses. So let's read those verses again now. Daniel 7, verse 13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. What what was it that Daniel saw on that day? What Daniel saw was the same thing that the apostles saw in Acts 1, except Daniel had the privilege of seeing it from the heavenly perspective. You can see this. 
the apostles saw the Lord Jesus go up into heaven and was covered by a cloud. What did Daniel see? One like a son of man coming on the clouds towards heaven. So he's seeing the ascension of Christ, but from the glorious perspective of heaven. And and then it says, he came, he was presented before the ancient of days, and then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. Don't miss the significance then of what happened on that day, on Ascension Day. This is what makes this day a day worth remembering, a day, a turning point in human history. When Christ ascended, he began to reign over earth. He'd finished the first part of the mission to which God had called him to suffer and to die on the cross and and then to rise. And as a result, God gave him as an inheritance all the nations of the world. And understand this then, Ascension Day is the day when Christ began what he's been doing for the last 2,000 years, which is taking the world for himself, taking his inheritance as his own. He didn't go up to heaven only in order to have the earth theoretically in principle for himself. No, Christ went to heaven... This is not a concept that every Christian understands. Christ went to heaven in order to begin taking the nations for himself. Not just to rule in theory, but to begin ruling in practice. Now you might think, if you're thinking through this, you might ask, well, okay, but what difference does it make that that now Christ is, is reigning? After all, wasn't God the Father reigning beforehand? What actually changed then on Ascension Day? Well, here's what changed. Prior to Christ going up to heaven, God certainly did rule over the earth in his sovereignty. He guides all things for his purposes. But that doesn't mean that the nations of the earth acknowledged him as God and Lord. Before Christ, in fact, there was only one nation on the face of the whole earth that acknowledged God as Lord. That's the nation of Israel, and even them, only half of the time. Here's the point. When Christ ascended into heaven, he finished his mission on earth, and he began a rule that will culminate in all nations obeying him, fearing him, and serving him. Again, you see this, all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. And so, in other words then, from that moment, human history has taken a radical shift. Revelation 20 describes it in a different term. It says, it speaks of after Christ's death, and it says then, at that moment, Satan was bound. He was thrown into a pit and bound. And what is this binding of Satan, but that he no longer has the power, it says, to deceive the nations. The days when the nations don't serve God, those days are coming to an end. And so from that moment on, when Christ went up into heaven, he began, you could say, progressively taking the earth for himself. And not just in theory that he rules over the earth and all peoples should serve him, but no, Christ has begun taking year after year after year, more and more of the world for himself. Now, I recognize not all Christians agree on this. There's all these theories of 
post-millennialism and amillennialism and all these, these different debates about how it all works and will the world become better and better or worse and worse. But there's no way around the clear biblical teaching that the nations since the day of ascension belong to Christ and that Christ from that day, having ascended to the throne, has been for the last 2,000 years progressively taking the world for himself, and he will continue to do so until he finally returns. Take 1 Corinthians 15, verse 25. He must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. If that doesn't teach that Christ's reign has a progressive and a conquering character, then, then there's nothing else that verse could possibly mean. In other words... In other words, Christ reigning until he has put all his enemies under his feet means year after year, more and more of Christ's enemies will be subjected to him. He will take the nations that already belong to him and cause them to bow before him. You think of what he promised Peter as well. He said, on this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Don't miss the fact that gates are a defensive weapon. We often think of the church as as sort of that city that's on the defense from the attacks of the world around us. The reality is, since Ascension Day, the world has her gates up, and Christ and the saints have the battering ram. They're the ones that are charging the city. They're the ones that are conquering. Since Christ ascended into heaven, in other words, dominion has not only been given to him in theory, but he has been taking that dominion for himself. He's been subduing his enemies under his feet. He's been bringing the nations under himself. Now we hear that and maybe it all sounds like a a pie-in-the-sky theology. Oh, it's nice that Christ is taking the world. But if you look around, what do you see? You look around at the country of Canada and you might say, well, Reverend, how can you possibly argue that Christ is progressively taking the nations for himself when you look at a country like Canada that for at least the last 50 years has been walking away from Christ? And I would say in response to that, well, first, we take what Scripture says by faith, even if it's not by sight. If that's true of what what Scripture says concerning the past, the creation of the world, the resurrection of Christ, then it's certainly also true of what Scripture teaches about the present, the reign of Christ, the growth of the church, and and the conquering of, of Christ's kingdom. And Daniel telling us then that, that, that the Savior has been, or the Son of Man has been given a kingdom such that all peoples, nations, and languages would serve him means that that is what we ought to believe by faith. 1 Corinthians 15 as well teaches the same. He will reign until all his enemies are under his feet. We must believe that. But in the second place, I would also say don't let the last 50 years in Canada cause you to miss the larger story of what, in fact, in history, Christ has been doing up until today. Canada's time, for sure, is coming. Canada has been walking away from the Lord. There's no question about that for at least 50 years. And that means that either this country will repent and turn back to Christ, 
or this country too will be one of those beasts that ultimately is destroyed. And then Christ will raise up a better country in its place. But don't miss the larger story of what Christ has been doing in the world beyond just the last 50 years. 50 years is a long time, maybe by the standards of of our lives, but it's only a small part of the larger history of Christ's work and what Christ has been doing in the world. To give you an example, a few decades ago, the Uh, The International Congress on World Evangelism put together a study that compared the number of unbelievers to the number of of committed Bible-believing Christians in the world, meaning Christians that read, obey, and believe the Bible, not just nominal Christians. Now, obviously, that's a difficult thing to measure, so the numbers, you you can't argue that they're exact. But just consider the findings of, of that study. In the year 100 A.D., 70 years after Christ died, there were 360 non-Christians for every one Bible-believing, committed Christian, of which probably all the Christians were, because you died for that kind of faith. 900 years later, in the year 1000 AD, that number had only gone down a little, about two-thirds. 220 non-Christians for every one Christian. In the year 1500, that number went down to only 69 non-Christians for every one Bible-believing, committed, church-going Christian. The year 1900, it was down to 27 unbelievers for every one believer. 1950, down to 21 unbelievers. 1980, down to 11 for every one. 1989, when the study was done, it was down to 7 non-Christians for every one Christian. Now, I'm not going to stand here and argue that those are exact numbers, that you can measure the amount of of Bible-believing committed Christians. Those numbers might be somewhat off. But even the, even the narrowest definition of what, it, what makes a Bible-believing, committed Christian still confirms that progressive character in Christ's reign. He has been, for the last 2,000 years, submitting all the nations under his feet. And that in spite of the, nominal, uh, of the collapse of nominal Christianity here in the West. In fact, even in the last... 50 years, in China alone, the numbers have made up for what's been lost in the West, at least in terms of numbers. Now, again, I'm also not saying that that trend will only ever go in one direction. In the short term, the number of committed Christians can fall. There's no promise that that number ever only goes, goes up. But if Christ has promised, which he has, that he will build his church and the gates of Hades will not overcome his church, and and if Scripture tells us he will reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet, then the direction of Christ's reign and the direction of human history ever since Ascension Day ought to be clear. And we do see it in the world. Now, of course, our, our faith is not in the numbers or the statistics or the things that we might see, the changes that we might see in the world, nor is our our hope ultimately tied up with, with what we see here on earth. Our hope, of course, is in heaven where Christ is, whatever happens here on earth. 
But the teaching that you do find here in Daniel and in Corinthians and in the words of Christ to Peter and in a number of Psalms and other parts of Scripture is that Christ ascended into heaven not only to have the earth in theory, but to take the earth for himself in history, to subdue it, and that that's what we ought to expect and what we ourselves ought also then to be working for. The Lord Jesus said the same thing to, uh, to his disciples even moments before his ascension in Matthew 28. He said, all authority in heaven and on earth, don't miss those words, has been given to me. And therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Now, among the different traditions, I mentioned these ah mills and post mills and other traditions, there, there are some on the extreme that are, will argue that the whole earth will be Christianized. 100% of the earth will all become Christian before Christ comes. Christ never made that promise. He promised his kingdom will grow until the day he comes. We can't put a, put a number on it. We can't say 90% or, or 80% of the world will ultimately become Christian. But what we can say is that ever since the day that Christ arose and ascended into heaven, he has been taking the earth for himself. So then understand the significance of what happened on Ascension Day, what Daniel saw. And he saw also not just the dominion being given to Christ, but notice also the dominion being taken away from those other nations. And consider then the the massive political implications that Ascension Day truly has. The kingdom of God is, of course, heavenly in origin, But it's 100% earthly in manifestation. The kingdom of God doesn't just just come and and stand alongside the kingdoms of the world as sort of a, a spiritual second dimension. No, it comes and it shatters and breaks all the kingdoms of the earth. It destroys them or it brings them into submission. And that's exactly what Christ ascended in order to do. Well, earlier we sang from Psalm 72... And in a moment, we'll sing some more verses from that psalm. And Psalm 72 is a messianic psalm. It's recognized in numerous places as such. It was written first for Solomon, but ever since ancient times, it was understood to be a song that's ultimately about the Messiah and the reign, the heavenly reign of the Messiah. So it describes what Christ has been doing ever since Ascension Day. It describes what the reign of Christ will look like. And let me just make three observations from that psalm, and then, and then we'll close. First, if you read Psalm 72, or sing it, if you remember what we sing, the reign of that Messiah, the reign of the King, is a universal reign. So Christ ascended into heaven in order to reign over all the earth. So verse 8, may he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Don't miss the significance of that verse, especially here in Canada where those words are written on the parliament building itself. His reign is universal. And it's universal not just in scope over the whole earth, but also in time. Verse 17 of Psalm 72. May his name endure forever. His fame continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him and all nations call him blessed. 
So his reign is universal in time and in place. Second, his reign is also good for the world. It's good for humanity, and especially for the poor and the oppressed. Christ's reign is the only hope, indeed, for the oppressed. Verse 4, may he defend the cause of the poor of the people, give deliverance to the children of the needy, and crush the oppressor. Or verse 12, for he delivers the needy when he calls the poor and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy from oppression and violence. He redeems their life and precious is their blood in his sight. So the reign of Christ as hearts are changed and consequently lives are changed and people are brought into submission, the reign of Christ is, as Scripture teaches us, the only hope for the poor and the oppressed and those who face injustice in the world. The, the wars that rage on in the, in the world, the only solution Scripture ever gives is the reign of the Messiah to finally bring an end to those wars. You think of the wars in the Middle East that are, that are rooted in, in a logical outworking of a philosophy of unforgiveness and domination by force They will never end until forgiveness is found in Christ and people find their place in Christ's kingdom instead of building their own. Here at home, too, the only hope for the oppressed is in the gospel spreading and changing hearts and ultimately lives and even communities. You think of the the abortion epidemic that, that exists right now in this country it's only through, the heart, through, through changed hearts as a result of the gospel that that will finally ever come to an end. We can put policies in place from the top down. We can have pregnancy centers to catch as many as, as, are, as are possible. But the spirit of death, the spirit that leads to abortion, will never end until the gospel changes the hearts of the people. The only hope then for those oppressed, the most helpless of all oppressed people, is in the gospel of Christ. And ever since Ascension Day, Christ has also had his mind on those poor and those oppressed to bring them justice and liberty as well. And so we need to understand, as Christians, we often want to think about the kingdom of Christ in a, in a spiritual way, and, and we're, we almost worry sometimes whether it might be impious to hope for, for worldly, earthly effects as a result of Christ's reign. But it's not wrong at all. That's what Christ's reign looks like here on earth. Obviously, we would be wrong to place our hope in changes in the world, as if that's the only thing we have to hope in instead of Christ himself. And of course, we don't know to what degree Christ will dominate the world until the day he comes. But the promise of Daniel 7 and the promise of Psalm 72 is that is that the reign of Christ has already begun and those changes are already taking place and will continue to take place until the day that Christ returns. Christ does not change hearts without also changing lives. And the church does not grow without the earth also being changed. The third thing I want to take from Psalm 72 is this. 
Christ is reigning ultimately in order to serve the glory of God. That's the highest good to which the reign of Christ is aimed at. That's what Christ is reigning for, so to speak. Some churches have, have gone, uh, gone off, off direction by, by putting so much hope and so much expectation in the change on earth that they forget that the ultimate good is the glory of God. We want to do good for the poor. We want to see justice for the oppressed. But all of this we want ultimately so that God would be honored because the dishonoring of God is the greatest injustice on earth. So Christ is ultimately reigning to serve the glory of God. And that's what Psalm 72 begins and ends with. Verse 1, Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. So Christ's reign here on earth that he's already begun is serving the goal of showing the world the justice and righteousness of God. Verse 17, may all people be blessed in him. All nations call him blessed. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his Glory. So Psalm 72 shows that the reign of Christ that he began on Ascension Day serves the glory of God from beginning to end. As Christ increasingly changes hearts, which leads to changed lives, which leads to changed communities, which leads to changed countries and changed laws and justice and righteousness being honored and upheld on earth, the result ultimately is the praise and glory of God, especially from those who were oppressed and those who had faced injustice. Here's what all this means then for us. Since Christ has ascended into heaven, he has already begun bringing this earth into submission to himself, even though we see setbacks like the last 50 years here in Canada. And this, the result that we should expect to see, and that Scripture promises that we will eventually see, is a changed world as a result of the gospel, which is the reign of Christ. The temptation for many Christians here in the West, especially after the last 50 years, is, is to see this collapse of nominal Christianity and then to conclude that the way things are going, the end must therefore be near. And then we can support that with many texts from the New Testament that talk about tribulation and and suffering and persecution. And so we resist the idea that the kingdom of God might actually be growing in the world because we think, what then of the warnings of Christ that we will face tribulation and, and suffering? And what do we do with the apostasy that we see today in Canada? But there there is no contradiction between the collapse of the West and the ultimate gain of the glory of the kingdom of God. You think of the kingdom of Israel being sent into exile, and from the perspective of the Jews, as they saw the walls being being broken down and and the, the people being brought away into exile, from their perspective, they would have seen the kingdom of God falling apart, and they would have thought the end is near. Little did they know how God was spreading them into the world in order to reap a much greater harvest. And the same may well be true in our own day, that Christ is breaking down nominal Christianity in order to show where the real church lies, in order that we may have a clearer and more effective witness in this country. 
And the warnings that Christ gave us about suffering and persecution, we certainly should take to heart. The promise that he will subdue his enemies under his feet and bring the nations into submission to himself is not a promise of an easy life for us Christians now. No, we Christians are called to be on the frontier of that war, on, on the front lines of that battle. And that's true whether we're here at home in a country that calls itself Christian or abroad in a place where less than 1% of the world or of the country is Christian. In fact, we can count on Satan's most violent opposition when we are encroaching upon his territory, when we are doing as Christ called us to do and spreading the gospel to those around us. So there's nothing contradictory between the promise that Christ will gain for himself the world and the warnings, on the other hand, that we Christians who follow him will still face suffering and persecution. If the mission of Paul is any indication at all, in fact, the suffering and sacrifice of you and I as Christians is precisely the means by which Christ will choose to grow his kingdom. It's the way that Christ himself advanced his kingdom, and it's the way that he calls us also to go. In fact, for Christians, he tells us, there is no other way at all. But where we go wrong, then, is is when we when we believe that, that the nominal Christianity that we've achieved in this country, calling itself a Christian country, Christians go wrong when they believe that that is good enough. And then they sit back and relax and end up spending their lives pursuing material possessions and goals instead of the honor and the name of Christ. And that may, be, may well be exactly what's led such a rapid decline of Christianity here in the West. Christians who are content with a nominally Christian country and content to spend their lives filled with idolatry and hypocrisy instead of serving Christ with pure hearts themselves. So with the decline of, of, of nominal Christianity, one good result is that that delusion is very rapidly fading. This is not a Christian country, at least not yet. Our hope, our expectation is that the day will come when Canada will be a Christian country or some other nation that Christ raises up in place of this one will one day be Christian. But by any any biblical measurement, this is not, has not yet been a Christian country. But Christ's ascension means one day it will be Christian. One day this world and this country will be changed. And so it's our first calling then to go and work to bring the world in submission to Christ. And that begins, it's important to understand, that begins then here at home, in our own church, and in our own individual lives and homes. If Christ has said, all nations, all peoples, all languages are mine, and I will take them for myself, we Christians should be the first to say yes and amen, and we are yours, Christ, and you can take us for yourself. If he doesn't reign here, then we certainly can't expect his reign to grow through us, anywhere else. If Christ's reign is, is accomplished and, and enlarged through the gospel and, and changed hearts and lives, that reign needs to begin here at home in my life 
and in your life. Justice and righteousness is what we hope to see throughout the world and what we ought to implement, first of all, in our own homes and our own lives. Husbands, do the poor and oppressed within your own household, or do they rejoice that Christ now rules over your life? Because there may well be poor and oppressed even in our own homes. Do they glorify God because their dad or their, or their husband has been changed by the gospel of Christ? That's what the reign of Christ looks like in the small scale. And when, that's, when that exists in our hearts and our own lives and our own homes and our own churches, then we begin to see Christ's reign extending throughout our country. So, brothers and sisters, 2,000 years ago, Christ ascended into heaven over a world that was almost entirely pagan, where the knowledge of God was almost nothing at all. And since then, he has been reigning and progressively putting all his enemies under his feet. And so let us then be the first to rejoice because of his reign and to bring ourselves under his reign. May he shatter the kingdoms that oppose him. As our catechism says under under the petition, may your kingdom come. May he destroy every work that raises itself against the church. And may that happen first of all in our own hearts and our own lives. And then may we pray as he has called us to pray that he would destroy the work of the devil also everywhere else in this country and everywhere else in this world, that the gates of Hades would not be able to withstand the battering ram of the gospel. Amen. Let's respond by singing from Psalm 72, stanzas 3 through 6.